You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. O'Hare Airport last night and went to the Moody van that was waiting to pick us up, I had my first opportunity to meet Jubilant. And after getting acquainted and hearing him speak, I couldn't wait to hear him sing. And I had no idea. I had no idea, not just about the quality of the gift that our Lord has blessed our brother with, but I had no idea how the Spirit would use his music to touch my heart as I sat on the platform. When he sang about the secret place, I closed my eyes and I pondered all the things in my life that bring me fear. And I visualized myself with all these fears being lifted up into the presence of the Most High. And I found myself aware that there's a longing in my soul to reach out and to know the Lord in a way that I don't. I found myself aware as he was singing, as the entire program so far has been unfolding, but particularly during jubilant singing, I found myself aware that there's a part of me that's afraid to abandon myself to God. Are you aware of that in your life? Have the walls come down? Remember years ago, counseling with a couple, my wife and I were sitting at Word of Life Bible Conference, and a couple had a meal with us, and they shared the story that they had been separated, and the wife had asked the husband to leave the home. And he wanted to get back in, but the walls of her heart were so thick, as he put it, she was afraid to let me back in because of the way that I had hurt her, and her walls were up. She would not give herself to me, and the gentleman was a new Christian. He had heard the story of Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, and he thought, well, if Joshua could get the walls of Jericho down by walking around the city, maybe I can get the walls of my wife's heart down. Not good exegesis, but God blessed. <laughs> and this gentleman, literally, one night about midnight, went to his home, and he walked around his house at midnight. Seven times. He didn't know it was 13, but that was okay. He walked around seven times, and his wife was sitting there telling us the story, saying that that particular evening, as she was all by herself in her home, she found herself getting very, very nervous. And she heard this noise. And then she heard it again. She heard it again. She didn't count, but it was seven times. And after seven times of walking around the house, he decided it was time to knock on the door. The locks had been changed. He couldn't let himself in, but he knocked on the door, and she was so terrified. She said, who is it? And she, he said his name. She opened the door and in sheer panic just fell into his arms because somebody was there she knew. humbling to be a marriage counselor, realize you don't do much of anything. It's all of God. <laughs> I'm trusting the walls of our heart will come down tonight. I'm trusting the walls of fear will come down in my heart and in yours. 
I'm trusting all the stories that you have to tell about your own life and your own struggles and your own pain that make it so difficult, it seems, to trust God. That under the teaching of the Word of God tonight, that the Spirit of God will take His Word and tear down the walls and release the part of our heart that most longs to know God, to abandon ourselves to Him. Will you pray with me to that end? Father, each of us comes tonight with a story. I have a story. Joe has a story. Jubilant has a story. Everybody has a story. The story is full of so many blessings from your kind and good hand. And it's full of the mystery of suffering as well. We're not sure what to do. Your word tells us that because the last chapter has been written, that we can face today's chapter with hope. Spirit of God, do what no speaker has ever done. Lead us into your presence as we open your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2? I want to read just two verses as our text for this evening, verse 28 of 1 John chapter 2, reads this way, and now, dear children, continue in him. I wonder what that means when you're worried sick about your kids. Continue in him when your husband's just left you. Continue in him when the biopsy is yet to be determined. Continue in Him so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. Chapter 3 and verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. What difference does the fact that Jesus Christ will soon return make to my life today? It was William James, the great pragmatist, who said that you can measure the worth of an idea by asking the question, what experienceable difference is it making in your life today? And that's the question I want to ask tonight. What difference is our hope of heaven making in our lives today? Last September, more than 3,000 Christian counselors gathered together in Nashville for a very large convention. The topic of the meeting of the American Association of Christian Counselors was soul care. And the question before us for the entire week was to ask, what does it mean for a Christian counselor to go beyond the bounds of normal psychotherapy and counseling and to actually enter the depths of the soul and to provide care? The thinking behind the choice of topic there was a growing recognition in the Christian counseling field, and I'm very, very grateful for this, that good counseling has less to do with fixing something broken and more to do with caring for a troubled soul. The speaker at the opening session of that conference was Johnny Erickson Tata. And if you have heard Johnny speak, and you'll have that privilege shortly, you know that the hope of heaven makes a total difference in how she lives today. 
Without that hope, she embodies the truth of the Scripture that without hope were of all people most to be pitied. She told all those counselors last September that the only way that anyone can care for her troubled soul, and she acknowledged that her soul is often troubled, was to provide hope of a better day and to walk the journey with her, with her eyes fixed on Jesus, the center of her faith and ours. I wasn't aware of it, and most of us in the conference were not aware of it, but to this conference came a woman, a doctor of psychology, a family therapist who was not a believer. And she came because she got word that over 3,000 counselors were gathering to discuss what Christianity has to do with counseling. And in this woman's mind, it was an oxymoron to put together Christianity and counseling. The two just didn't fit. And so she came to see what was up with this field of Christian counseling. She had never thought that any that right-wing conservative, as she put it, evangelical Christianity, with all its bigotry and self-righteousness, could ever be joined with counseling and have a good result. So she decided to check it out for herself, much to her, much to her credit, and she came to the conference. And I want to read you, she wrote a 12-page article, I want to read you a few excerpts from what happened as she observed 3,000 people with hope. After listening to Tata, she said this. Tata says she wakes every morning tired, weary with pain, frustrated, discouraged, wondering why she must go on, and then answers her own question, or God does, quote from Johnny, God has the world rigged for frustration, pain, disappointment, so that we'll be driven to seek him out. Life is supposed to be difficult, Johnny told us that day. We are supposed to experience, this woman writes, according to Tata, we're supposed to experience the suffering of Christ so we can experience his power. Then she again quotes Johnny, The weaker I was in the wheelchair, the harder I learned to lean on Jesus, and the stronger I found him to be. There is no help, no hope except in him. Tata reminds her audience, a message I will hear, the psychologist speaking, the message I will hear often during the next few days that ultimately it is not the merely mortal efforts of even the most talented professional counselor that will heal us, but the divine agency of the wonderful counselor of Scripture. The time will come, she says at the end of her talk, when I will get my new body, my resurrected body. I'm a bud that will one day flower. What impression does our hope make on the unbelieving world? She goes on to write, Throughout this presentation, I found I find myself ricocheting crazily between different emotions. On the one hand, much of what Tata says embarrasses me, ringing of manipulative pathos and manufactured spiritual uplift, except for the authentically heartbreaking words at the end, I will get my new body. And yet I'm moved by her in spite of myself, even a little afraid of her, her words, her glittering eyes, the possibilities she raises. Perhaps she's talking to me after all, and I don't like it. Because I don't want to see myself in this crippled woman who still rebels in her heart as I do in mine against the unpalatable truths of mortal existence, that we're all crippled by something and we all fight against the knowledge of our own inadequacy. You go to God because you have to, Tata says, awakening that old sixth sense in me that I'm in for it like everybody else, one way or another. Nobody gets out of life alive, at least not in this world. 
You can endure almost anything if you know God is sitting next to you, Tata said. Is this the ultimate fail-safe escape? Is there some heart-pumping hope these people have, which I don't? That whatever awfulness transpires in their lives, however old, sick, bereft, poor, failed, as the world measures success, they are nonetheless irreplaceable actors in a vast epic drama, characters in a glorious story that has only just begun. What effect does our hope have on the unbelieving world? The writer says, I come to the conference sharing with other secular professionals a certain attitude about conservative evangelical Christianity. Based on a smorgasbord of impressions from the media, from chance acquaintances, from my own experience, with these thoughts, it is not hard to work up a good case against the Christian right. Ignorance, arrogance, self-righteousness, bigotry. There are more than enough examples among the fold to repel any self-respecting liberal humanist. Except that none of those Christians seem to be at this meeting. She sat through the entire conference. At the end of the article that she wrote, I want to read you her last few words. Why am I drawn to these people? This movement? In spite of a worldview that can seem so foreign, uncompromising to the larger profane culture I inhabit? The simple answer that evangelicals seem to enjoy a glowing intensity about their belief. A capacity for ecstatic transcendence that makes me wistful for something that seems missing in my life. In the lives of many people that I know. She goes on to conclude her article by saying one of the great passages in the Bible, which perhaps most simply encapsulates the Christian's holy duties in life and the Christian counselor's professional credos from Matthew, the two great commandments, loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second like unto it is this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The writer says, like so many biblical commandments, they are, of course, quite impossible. A scandalous imposition on the most fundamental rule of ordinary human life in our self-absorbed age. The cardinal principle of me first. Rebuilding, reconditioning, and refurbishing the me first part of our nature has been the primary goal of psychotherapy for almost a century. The downside to the egotism that is a hallmark of our civilization, however, is that it keeps us lonely and isolated. Obsessively protective of ourselves and all that we imagine belongs to us, we not only cannot truly connect with other people, we don't ever drink deeply from the wellspring of our own being. It may work out well for years and for years and for years, this concentration on me, 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 my, my friends, my love life, my work, my house, my ideas, my feelings, my dramas. Like many of my peers, I have spent hundreds of hours in therapy discussing nothing but these epical issues. But after a while, all the concentration on self grows boring, stale, unproductive. Perhaps the world's greatest evangelist is a human aging process. which makes painfully clear how little we can do, how short the time we have left to do it. She then quotes Lewis. The world is so built that to help us desert our own satisfactions, they desert us. War and trouble and finally old age take from us one by one all those things that the natural self hoped for at its setting it out. Begging is our only wisdom, Lewis said. And want, in the end, makes it easier for us to be beggars. And then this doctor of psychology finishes by saying, actually, 
living the life of a beggar might not be so bad. I go out running at noon on this mid-November day and end up in a grove of pine trees by the ocean. I stop to rest for a moment, and as I stand there, I hear the wind make a whirring sound high up in the trees, the waves slap at the shore, and see, half-hidden by tree trunks, the ocean sparkling and white-capped, a few ducks bobbing on the water, quacking softly to themselves. I think about this story, about the people I have met, the conversations I have had, the books I have read, the questions I have asked. The place where I now rest is both quiet and vibrating, with the sounds of a chilly fall day, and there seems to be almost a living presence in the air all around me. In that strangely buzzing silence, I listen for something, and I wait. What difference does our hope make? I want to suggest four basic thoughts in my time with you this evening. As I ponder the impact on this woman... people who are aware of a desire for more, the people who are aware that we're not yet home. As I think about what it means to have this hope in a way that changes us, that somehow purifies us, and I begin to ask, what was purified in that body of Christian counselors that struck the heart of this secular woman and stirred her to wonder and to want? Four thoughts I want to suggest to you this evening that our hope of Jesus coming, how it can make a difference in our lives today. Number one, hope stirs what is deepest within us. And what is deepest is our hope for meaning and love, as this woman eloquently testified. To paraphrase Viktor Frankl, we can survive any what if we have a why and a friend. Hope stirs what is deepest within us. That's what I experienced as jubilant saying. I find myself thinking of the things in my life that are troubling and I realized I want something so much more than the resolution of all those troubling things. The second thought I want to develop a little bit with you tonight is what is deepest in every regenerate heart, what is deepest in each of our hearts tonight, whether we're aware of it or not, is the desire to know God. Now, the second point I suggest to you is hard to grasp because so many of us as Christians are terrified of passion. We're scared to face the deepest part of our souls, which has a passion to know Him. Bruce Demarest is a professor at Denver Theological Seminary. He's just written a book called Satisfy Your Soul and... He talks about his fear of passion. I want to read you just a few passages from Bruce Demarest's book, a man who's now 62 years old. Speaking about 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, he said, From outward appearances, my life and ministry were above reproach and successful. A flow of notes from seminary students and graduates expressed appreciation for my teaching and defense of the faith. With invitations in hand to participate in Christian ministries at home and abroad, I was on a roll and life seemed rather rosy. I was a typical product of evangelical academic culture. The grace of God was something I'd experienced at the moment of salvation and relied on for my future with God in heaven. For now, though, God's continual outpouring of grace was fairly abstract to me. I'd been saved, and that was that. And now it was up to me to work hard as a Christian. He then went to a 
conference where people began talking about what it means to know God. And Dr. Demarest, a well-schooled scholar, has his Ph.D. under F.F. F. Bruce and knows the Bible backwards and forwards in ways I wouldn't pretend to. And after listening to a new conference, he said, at first I, I sat there as people talked about these things. I sat there trying not to appear enthusiastic while the presentations were really resonating with my heart's longing. Didn't I want a deeper relationship with the living God? Didn't I want to know his presence and to sense his work in my life? The more I attended the class, the more I delighted in this new way God was tuning the limp strings of my heart. No, I wasn't buried in a huge accidental crisis, but I was longing for greater spiritual reality, for the constant connection of my spirit with God's spirit as promised in Scripture. The presentation of these brothers and sisters in Christ echoed in the deep places of my heart where my soul shouted back, I want to know God. If our hope in Christ is real, and if we're in the process of purifying ourselves, I suggest that the first thing we'll become aware of is we'll find the courage to pay attention to what is deepest within us, and then we'll become aware if we allow ourselves to be moved by the music and moved by the Word and moved by the Spirit, that what is deepest in every human regenerate heart is a passionate desire to know God. It's my second thought. My third thought is this. And I want to center much of my thinking around this. The life that desires to know God will survive every trial that we'll ever experience on this planet. Your passion to know God, my passion to know God, will survive every trial that we'll ever experience on this planet. I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what your struggles are. I know what some of mine are. And I have to take time to discover that there's something in me that's still alive, no matter what goes wrong in my life. The life that desires to know God will survive every trial that we'll ever experience on this planet. It's my third thought. My fourth, my fourth and final thought True spirituality consists of discovering that passion for Christ and living it out. Let your hope give you the courage to face what's deepest within you. Expect to find that your deepest desire is to see the face of God. Believe that the life you discover, the life that longs to know God, will not only survive but will thrive in the worst hardships you face, and purifying yourself, becoming truly spiritual, consists of discovering that life and living it out. Just this past week, in the counseling program where I teach in Colorado, I was sitting with a small group, and a young single woman and I were chatting in front of the group about the spiritual life. In the middle of my conversation, in the middle of a little mini-lecture that I was giving to our small group, the woman began to cry. And she turned to me and she said, Stop talking, please. You're... You're inviting me to think about what it is that I really deeply want, and that's just too painful. And as the tears began to flow, she said, I want you to know that I'm just so lonely, I can barely bear the reality of how lonely I am. I want so bad to be married, and I can't bear to face the hurt that I feel as I continue in my singleness. What would you say at that point? What difference does the hope of Christ make in that woman's life? Do you say to her something like, well, don't worry about getting married. You'll be in heaven someday. I mean, what do you say at that point? (laughs) 
I sat quietly for a moment. Then I gently began speaking, and I said something like this. I can't recall verbatim, but the gist of what I said was this. There's, there's more in your soul right now than pain. Sit quietly for a moment and look beneath the pain of loneliness into the depths of your soul. You know that one day, every desire of your heart, when you're in touch with what you really long for, that one day, every desire of your heart will be satisfied. With that thought in your mind, with that hope of heaven, what I want you to do as you ponder that thought, sit quietly with me now and tell me what you discover is going on within you. As you look beneath the pain of your, your life. She looked up at me and she did say this. She said, keep talking. So I did. And I said this. You long to be held? To have someone see all of you and sing with delight? You long to see a lover's eyes brimming with excitement as he looks at you? That longing is your passion for God. And although your passion for a husband is real and the absence of a husband and the loneliness that you feel is very real, the only way you're going to be able to handle that is to look beneath the passion for a husband and the pain of your loneliness and to discover within the deepest part of your soul a far richer passion. And as you ponder your own femininity, as you ponder your own feminine soul, and as you think about how much you long to be held and to have your lover's eyes look at you with excitement, as you begin to ponder that, understand that the deeper you go, the more you'll become aware that your deepest passion is to know God. Let hope provide the courage to look deeply into your soul. That's the first point. The second point, to repeat myself and then to illustrate, is this, that as you begin to look deeply into your soul, in the middle of all your pain, expect to find that your deepest desire is to know God, to rest in His love, and to rejoice in His presence. Last Sunday morning, Rachel and I had breakfast with very close friends, and I have permission to tell the story. I've come to the realization, as I sat with um, our friends, I've come to the realization that... Fairly often, as I chat with people, I don't come across as really safe. That people share something, and I'll think of something, and I'll kind of go after them and expose things, and people excuse themselves and leave the hour. Because <laughs> I like to make things right. I like to fix people. I was thinking about the issue of becoming a safe person as our friend began to share rather deeply and he had asked for this breakfast meeting and he and his wife came to join Rachel and me for breakfast before church and we got around to the topic eventually and he said, Larry and Rachel, this is what I want to talk about. I really don't receive very well. I find myself always pressured to, to make something happen and whenever I'm in a position where I'm given something, I'm uncomfortable and I feel like I want to start giving as opposed to receiving. And where this had come to light was we had a birthday party for him the week before, and his wife, in the presence of a, a small community of friends, had read him just the sweetest, most wonderful letter expressing her love for her husband. And when she finished reading this very deep and rich letter, he responded by giving back to her and going around the table and giving to everybody at the table. 
he wouldn't just receive. And it hurt his wife, and she had told him that later. It was Frederick Beekner, I think, who said that it's not only true that it's more blessed to give than to receive, it's a whole lot easier. Because when we give, we're a little safer than when we're vulnerable. When we receive and make known that we really are needy and that it means something to us when something comes into us, that we're vulnerable and we prefer to put up the walls and not admit how much we long for someone to pour into us. And as a result of committing ourselves to always being givers and never allowing ourselves to receive, we never discover, never discover the goodness of God experientially. So I asked my friend this question as he was sharing, why is it that I'm so afraid to receive? Why, when my wife gave me that beautiful letter last week and read it in front of our group, why did I feel a certain awkwardness and tightness that I relieved by beginning to talk and, and telling my wife how wonderful she was and giving to her and going around the table and giving to each of my friends and saying what they meant to me, wanting to bless everybody? Why was I so afraid to receive? anybody relating to that? Anybody more comfortable when you're invulnerable? I asked him a question at breakfast. I said, um, Bob, when do you cry the most deeply? One of those simple questions that keeps the thing light and Bob, when do you cry? When do you cry most deeply? And he stunned me with his answer. He paused for a bit and he said, I think it happened two days ago. What happened? And at breakfast last Sunday morning, he shared, my business has been really hard and overwhelmingly difficult. And I'm on the phone all day long. I'm in my car on the plane, always on the phone, wherever I am, giving out, using my cell phone every day, dozens of times, solving problems. Now listen to how small this sounds and see if you can relate to it. He said, two days ago, I sat in my car, getting ready to go drive someplace, and I turned on my cell phone, expecting to find at least ten messages, and there were none. And when I saw that there were no messages to respond to and no one wanted me to do anything, I was responsible for nothing in this particular sphere of my business. I don't know what happened, Larry. This is weird. You're the psychologist. Figure it out for me if you want. But all I can tell you is this, that when I saw the cell phone with no messages, I burst into tears. Ever have anything happen that just puzzles you about yourself or about somebody else? And I'm sitting there, the professional therapist, supposed to figure all this stuff out. By the way, whenever you counsel, you want to always have a pen with you. And what you do with it is a little technique I use. When a person talks to you and you have no idea what to say, you take the pen and you put it up against the right side of your lip and you press up and furrow your brow and you just look very, very intelligent. <laughs> now, you want to be careful. It's a very delicate technique. If you apply too much pressure, it goes up and you don't want to do that. 
He said, Larry, I don't get it, but at that particular point, I just felt an emotional release of something. I burst into tears. I went back inside to my wife, and I held her. We cried together. And he said, something deep inside has been touched. What's going on? And I thought to myself, and we talked about it for some length, actually. This man just longs for the rest of being given to. Longs to go off duty. My friend has just discovered how deeply he desires what only God can give. In the middle of this pressuring world where from a child up he learned that he must give to survive, he has seen himself as a little child, needy, wanting someone strong to be there for him. And he became aware of that. He wept over how much he longs to receive from someone who sees how needy he is. When you and I stay sensitive to what's in our hearts, eventually we'll discover a life that longs to know God, to receive from Him. A life that no hardship in life can destroy. Rachel and I love coming to Moody Founders Week. One of the reasons we love coming, and there are so many reasons, but one of the reasons we love coming is we seem to have a Opportunities to get into such wonderful conversations, and we've had some wonderful conversations already today. A friend who's going through some very, very hard times shared with us today. And I found myself looking at this gentleman and thinking, in the core of your soul, in the middle of all that you're struggling with, you do have a hope, and the hope can purify. And rather than hearing that as a pressure, therefore do these things and shape up and here's the imposition and here are the commandments, rather than that, the hope that you have frees you to look deeply into your heart and to discover a passion for God that is deeper than every other passion and a passion, a life that nothing can destroy. No trial. I'm spending quite a bit of time with a young man whose wife has just left him. And he said that one of the great blessings in his life is that God has brought into his life an older person who has gone through the dark night of divorce some years before. And he said, Larry, you've never experienced divorce and you don't know what it's like, and you've been helpful as you've been chatting with me, but let me tell you what the other person has done for me that you really can't do. This other person who has been divorced 12 or 13 years ago is able to look at me and say, this is what it will feel like when you walk out of the courtroom and the judge does this. It's what you'll feel like when you walk out. But let me tell you, 13 years since my divorce... My love for Jesus is stronger than ever. There's a passion within your soul right now that you may not, may not be aware of. It will survive every trial. Take your Bibles, and for the last few minutes, I want you to look at Matthew 27 to underscore the point that I just made, that there's a life within us that will survive the very worst trial. Matthew 27 
told my father this past week as he struggles so with such difficulty with mother's Alzheimer's. I told my father last week that, Dad, your role as my teacher is more important now than it's ever been. I'm not putting the pressure on, but I'm telling you I'm thirsty. I want to believe with all my heart that no trial can rob my passion to know God. We sat and had coffee a week or so ago, and we spent some time talking about Matthew 27 and verse 45. The story of the crucifixion, the horrible incidents, the central event in all of history that made possible and secures our hope. The Lord is hanging on the cross and the mockery is coming His way and people are hurling insults at Him. And at one point in verse 45, verse 45, we're told that from the sixth hour about noon until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Did you ever stop and pause at that? Dad and I did for about an hour last week and talked about the darkness that came over the land for three hours while our Lord hung on the cross. What happened during those three hours? I'm very aware as I raise the topic that I'm on holy ground and on ground that's far beyond my comprehension to understand. But I would suggest a few things. I would suggest this. You recall in Gethsemane when the soldiers and the chief priests and the other elders came to arrest our Lord, that our Lord turned to them and He said, This is your hour when darkness reigns. And so many times in the course of His life when they came to get Him, He said, The hour has not yet come. Mine hour has not yet come. Therefore, I'll simply walk through you. You have no power over me until I yield myself to the power of darkness. Whatever else happened during those three hours, I would suggest this, that evil had its way. Jesus became sin. Satan, no doubt, thinking he's winning the victory. And what strikes me about this passage is this, that Jesus endured hell's worst, every difficulty, every terror, every pain, every agony that sin produces. Remember what the Apostle John said in the first chapter of his book, that light came into the world and the darkness couldn't put it out? It's striking to notice that after the three hours of darkness, when the, hour, when the darkness ended, there was no more mockery. The centurion, after the darkness, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. This was the Son of God. The crowds beat their breasts as they went away. Notice this, that after going through the worst trial imaginable, when the three hours was concluded, Jesus said four things. He said, my God, my God, why did you leave me alone? Why did you forsake me? I was alone. And it was awful. But his passion for the Father survived. The second thing he said was, I thirst. The struggle was real. Oh, folks, you must never assume that when people go through struggles in life that somehow knowing God makes the struggle simple. It never does. The struggle in Jesus' case was unbelievably real, and I'm thirsty, I'm depleted after the battle. 
It's a hard battle, and what you're going through tonight is certainly not what Jesus went through, because he went through the battle in your place. He paid for our sins, but our battles are real, and we thirst. The third thing he said was, it is finished. Sin has now been fully paid for, and no one who receives my life will ever be destroyed by sin. The life I will give them will survive everything. The last thing he said was, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Can you hear what he's saying there? I know what's coming. I'm going home. Never be alone again. And Jesus looks at you and me and he says, neither will you. Whatever you're going through, in the core of your being, your passion for God survives. You may not feel it, but it's there. Let your hope give you the courage to face all that's within you. That's part of the purifying process. Let the hope that you have that there's something alive within me that cannot be destroyed, therefore, let me face everything. Let me face how, how angry I'm feeling. Let me face how resentful I am. Let me face all that's ugly about me. Let me face whatever's true. I want to face all that's within me. And the hope that I have of heaven gives me the courage to realize that when I face all the pain, I'm never facing the bottom line. Expect, secondly, to discover the passion to know God that's stronger than every other passion. And believe that nothing you will ever go through, no matter how dark and long is the dark night of your soul, can ever destroy the life that's within you. Your passion for God remains. When you dig to the deepest part of your soul, you'll find a passion for God. Of all the books that I've written, the one that has generated the most response and to some degree controversy has been a book called Inside Out. In that book I talked about the journey into the soul, the courage to journey within and to find that in the core of our being there are two things that we discover reliably when we're honest. Number one, we deeply long for what we do not yet fully have, therefore we all hurt. And secondly, when you look in the deepest part of your soul, you find that there is a, a self-protection, a, a sinfulness, a preoccupation with self that is just embedded within us. And I talked about the journey into the soul, exposing these deep, awful things. And the book came to its 10-year anniversary about a year ago, and I was asked to have a 10-year edition, and I wrote a last chapter for the 10-year edition for the book, and I said this. I, I said I didn't complete the story. When you look in the deepest part of your soul... If what you find is sin and pain, you haven't looked deep enough. Because beneath all the bad stuff, there's something wonderful that survives everything that's bad. There's a passion for God that cannot be eliminated. To let hope purify us is to discover that passion and to live it out. When I was in the hospital a couple of years ago, struggling with cancer, my wife, every day, as she visited with me, read me from Ruth Meyer's marvelous little book, 31 Days of Praise. Ruth Meyer's, in that book, 31 Days of Praise, tells the story of her first husband's death from cancer and how during his final weeks of pain, he continued to praise God. And Someone asked him one day, what's the basis for your joy? You're, you're, you're hurting. You're in pain. The doctors have told you that you're going to die. And yet when we come in, I don't feel that there's a, a pressure on you to be joyful, but you are. 
It's interesting how, um, how we all posture so much. When I was in the hospital and I read about that, I found myself when, come, when visitors would come to visit me, I thought about all the times you hear people say that I came to visit a hospital patient and I left more blessed, you know, for, and I thought, I've got to pull that one off now, you know. <laughs> What rank immaturity. This man was asked, what is the basis for your joy? You're not trying to pull anything off. There's something alive within you. As you're dying, as your body is being destroyed by cancer, you seem more alive than me, many visitors said. Tell us what your secret is, what's happening. And here's what this gentleman said that my wife read to me as I was in the hospital bed. She said this. She read this to me. The man's words were these. This is my last chance to praise God while I suffer. Soon I will suffer no more. I want him to enjoy how much I trust and love him even when I hurt. It's my last chance to do it. Soon I'll be home. And now, dear children, continue in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him that is coming. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What difference does the second coming make in our lives today? Tomorrow we'll be home. Today, what does it mean to trust? Maybe included in what it means to trust is to have the courage to face what's deeply happening within us, the faith to believe that what's happening within us at the deepest level is a passion for God. The confidence that our passion for God can never be destroyed. And when that passion is discovered, it's whatever means God makes available, the courage to live out that passion. Maybe that's part of what it means to purify ourselves with the hope that's ours. Father, I'm aware that the walls are not entirely down. I'm aware that I long to know you, but there's a but. I'm afraid. Teach us that we're the community of the broken. But the community of the broken that are loved, forgiven, and on our way to heaven. And in this hope that's ours, maybe purify ourselves by looking beneath all else that's there to discover the life that you put within us, the passion for Jesus. We've sung about it, we've thought about it, we've expressed to you our passion. Deepen it within us that the unbelieving world will look at us as that psychologist looked at the counselors and said there's something boring about preoccupation with ourselves and there's something exhilarating about preoccupation with someone else and there's a God. Something's missing. Teach us, Father, that we can have that power in this watching world as we purify ourselves because of the hope that's within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.